You are listening to a podcast from Australia's best-known community radio station, 3RRR, 102.7 in Melbourne. It hasn't been a good year or decade on the roads for pedestrians uh, and roads have been particu- have become particularly unsafe for older residents. We've seen an increase in older people being hit by drivers as they walk close to home and in and around shopping strips. But hopefully we're going to see some change. Um, Ascot Vale's Union Road, for instance, is being used as a national trial site for pedestrian friendliness and it's been rebuilt for older people based on a new planning toolkit. But there's lots of other things to talk about with regards to walking safety and Ben Russell who's Executive Officer at Victoria Walks and also uh, Vice President at the International Federation of Pedestrians. He is eminently qualified to speak about making Melbourne better for walkers and he's um, popped by, walked in. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks, Ben. And uh, it's been a while since we've seen you and I know you've been putting out lots of reports on how to make uh, Melbourne more walker-friendly. But let's talk about older people first, this idea of, uh, you know, old older people walking to their local shopping strip and then getting knocked over. I mean, this is a scenario that uh, dozens of of, um, families have had to deal with in the past year and, and certainly more than that over the past decade what is it that's so unfriendly to uh to older people and i think there's a couple of things there's generally we design our cities around cars if you like canned people not fresh ones on foot so that's and then break it down further to seniors and um one of the things we've got to remember is seniors as they get older their walking rates between walking for recreation walking for transport the overall rates don't change but what does change is a lot of their walking becomes around transport leading their everyday life getting to shops and services and that sort of stuff but then you know to think uh, about seniors is you know we all get across the population get people get hit but there's a couple of significant things for seniors one is when they're hit they stay hit so their hospitalization rates their fatality rates are far greater per hundred thousand population than the rest of the population and generally one of the reasons for this is we feel is you know it's bad road design bad driver behavior and predominantly and i think important thing is drivers tend to we think expect walkers to get out of the way i must say that the sa- one of the saddest things when when i drive my car is when i see an old woman or an old man trying to run across the mm. intersection to get out of my way or like they can see the lights about to change and they're running to try and to get to the other side before i run them over and i that actually makes me deeply sad yeah. but that's what happens it happens all the time you see it constantly you see it constantly because the traffic at pedestrian lights where there are lights they're timed at oh i've forgotten the figure one and they're timed at you know the average adult walking speed but a lot of seniors walk a heck of a lot slower so we don't time them for them we time them for the ad, adult and usually male body, our whole, you know, uh, transport network for walking. Um, there's the other thing is people always think they see a senior crossing the road and go, oh, why don't they walk down to those lights? And for a senior who might be slow at walking, you know, lights 400 metres down the road is an unreal expectation and they have got a legal right to be able to cross the road. We're just not designing it so they can get across. And I think one of the figures, I think, around uh, senior pedestrians is, you know, over 65, they're 14.5% of the population, but 39% of deaths. But there's, we break it down further that we know that the, of the over 65, 16% of their crashes occur on footpaths where they should feel most safest. So that's where footpaths cross over driveways and car parks. And then as they get older, it unfortunately gets a lot worse. And I'll give you another stat. I won't do too many stats, but the over 80 are 2% of the Victorian population. They're 13% of pedestrian deaths. 
but 23% of their crashes occur on footpaths. So that's drive just coming in and out of driveways and car parks and they're legally required to give way and they don't. And we, you know, I think a lot of drivers are unaware of their obligations. So what, what um, I mean, it, are there consequences for, for drivers who run people over and kill them? I mean, what, what uh, happens? There, there are, but what we've seen and we're uh, looking, uh, trying to encourage the government to do it or get funding for us to commission research to really look at when uh, pedestrians are hit from the investigation police investigation right through to the courts to see what is happening because we know of some instances where seniors have been horribly hospitalised for months and the driver's effectively got, you know, a couple hundred dollar fine. And from our point of view, that's not appropriate, but we really need to dig really deep into it. With, with pedestrian deaths, whether we're talking about seniors or otherwise, are there particular hotspots across Melbourne, across Victoria that there's been research done into that you can identify as particularly dangerous? Uh, no, there... The, the no, not across the board. And I think particularly, if we think in terms of go back to seniors, it happens in their local neighbourhoods. It's mm. happening across the population. And that's one, I think, one of the failings of our road safety system and funding for roads. Generally, what the government does is black spot funding where there's lots of crashes with cars. But so that they take a geographical approach. But for walking, it's more of a demographic. So you've got to go across demographic and geographic. So it's not hot, it's everywhere. So what we need to do is really design across the whole network, particularly in residential areas and high pedestrian areas like strip shoppings, really redesign them. And when you say redesign, in, in, in what, I suppose, in what way, but also, uh, are there going to be changes for drivers if we actually plan for pedestrians and plan for older people on our roads what are the 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 consequences like to be likely yeah. to be for the way people drive now yeah i think this there's a People have a bit of a misunderstanding sometimes. I think in the inner area, um, we have to design around people. We can't design around cars because we don't have the road space because of congestion. So we have to deal with congestion by providing better walking and better public transport and better cycling. So there's things which will impact and some of them don't. In a general term, when we've designed our road network, engineers, they've over-designed the road network. So what we mean by that is, you know, it's a bit like engineers when they design a bridge for, I don't know, 100 thousand tonnes of traffic, well they design it for a bit more to make it safer, or design an aeroplane, they'll make it safer the roads are the same thing, so most of our road network in, in, in you know, urban areas with, that are 50k were actually um, designed for 60, but because of that extra bit they are probably designed for 65 so now we've dropped to 50 in some areas to 40, we actually have to change the configuration of those streets. And that would be things like, for seniors, you've got to reduce the distance they have to cross to get across a road. Most of our roads are way too wide. Have to things like the, reduce the complexities. That'll be things like two-way traffic. They have to, when they have to engage with two-way traffic, that makes it much more uh, confusing for some to get across. So you want to have a pedestrian refuge in the middle or a curb extension. We want to do things like uh, increase the traffic time, uh, the timing to get across traffic lights. And that can be, we have the technology to do it where they can measure uh, the, the speed of a person on a crossing. We actually have the technology, but not the will to spend the money to do it. So there's also um, things like reducing vehicle speed is really a key thing. Our speeds in urban areas by international standards are woefully high. Uh, and Even at 50k? Yeah, absolutely. You know, think, you know, Triple R's, you know, Nicholson Street and talking about 40, absolutely that should be 40. And some of these narrow streets around here, just as I was walking up, I mean, really, they should be 30k. 
you know, really get them down. Because you're, pop- you're going to be popular, Ben. I think I'll be popular with people <laughs> if they think about their own streets. <laughs> what you, well, that's what true. Your own street true. outside your yeah. house. I mean, yeah, no one wants someone hooning down that, do they? No, so. no. So, and what, what's the purpose of your street? What do you want your streets to look like? Do you want places where you know, kids can muck around, you can sit, you can talk, you can laugh, you know, all this sort of stuff? If that's what you want, we've got to think about speed. But with speed, I'll just give you an example. If you think about, I'm not an expert on it, but on a freeway, there's an optimal speed. And if we've gone to 100k an hour coming into the CBD, which you won't get that high in the, in the, in the morning, but the higher the speed, the greater the distance between vehicles. So there's an optimal speed is actually a lot slower than what it is in urban areas, and you'll get more cars going through at a slower speed. Are these issues around speed limits and, and um, having a, a longer time between pedestrian crossings, for example, are they, are they being considered in the broader mix of how we redesign our city? Because there seems to be a lot of emphasis given to, well, widening freeways, for yep. example, in having bike paths that are, that are better and, and allowing greater numbers of people, which has happened in the city, using bike paths yep. as their primary um, form of transport. Is pedestrian or walking as a form of transport being given that priority in the broader mix of how we move through and around? Well, so yes and no. And the no is, you know, I think every local, state and federal government or particularly local and state recognise it, but often what we get in terms of walking is we get nice fluffy words. Um, We need to do this, but we don't actually get the hard money. We're certainly doing it in some areas where there's, uh, which is great. The current state government's uh, um, indicated that they've got a lot more funding through TAC for road safety uh, around pedestrian issues, which is great. We've not yet seen a lot of that come into play, but there's very good things being said and we we welcome it. One of the things I was limiting with that is if we just concentrate on road safety we don't get because what we also want is increase in behavior so activity so it's both making it safer but also increasing the numbers of people who walk um and i'll give you an example you know you can make it safe in the safe if you want to reduce pedestrian deaths and this was kind of like the joke in engineering sort of 10 20 years ago if you want to reduce the number of pedestrian fatalities the easiest way to do it is get rid of pedestrians so that's the risk. We actually need to make it safer, but with an eye on making more people walk in. It's not, when we say pedestrians, it's kind of like a bad word. It kind of sounds a bit boring, but it's walking. And think about, you know, our urban network, you know, there's footpaths there for walking, but also talking, playing, loving, living, learning, the basis of our community space. And that's really about building, you know, cities around people. And that's increasing density as well and increasing public transport. And that's what Melbourne is going to have to do, like every city over the next few decades, if they want the city to function. Because if we keep doing what we're doing, it won't function from an economic in transport, you know, that people will be stuck in congestion. It just won't work. So we need to do it to make it function, be healthy and economically viable. And we're speaking with um, Ben Rossiter, and um, you might have guessed he's um, he's into walking. He's from Victoria Walks, and he's uh, also uh, on a vice president of an international body called the International Federation of Pedestrians. And we're talking about, I suppose, walking-friendly cities. And, I mean, you make a lot of submissions, Ben, and I've read some of them, and uh, you speak a lot in those submissions around the benefits of walking, social benefits, connectivity between each other, communities and and the like, also health, and you put numbers around these things. So if we get people walking more often, if they can walk to a shop, which a lot of people can't, it's just too far, we're going to start to get some benefits to our our health systems and and so forth. Is this Does this cut through these kinds of numbers that you put around, I suppose, 
you can, if you spend money on making things more pedestrian friendly, you get all this kind of savings yep. elsewhere. Yep. So cost benefit analysis, you get much greater returns. Yeah. It does cut through in some ways, but to the general community, getting the general community to argue for this is a little bit harder because, you know, it, we know it's not environment. People won't argue for it for environmental reasons unless they're already environmentally aware and, and health. So it's trying to get people to think about the type of community they want to live in. Um, my mind just went blank there. I had another response. That just yeah, but this idea, I mean, a lot of people worry, I mean, if we go down to what people do every day is take kids to school. And we yep. know that we've got fewer kids walking now, fewer kids cycling now than at any other point in history. Yep. It's how the, you know, really a very small proportion of kids get to school under their own steam. Yep. And that really leads to fewer kids getting to school under their own steam because Families are worried about the cars that yep. are endangering their kids on the road. So it kind of feeds itself. Yep. Uh, do you think we will start to see a shift away from that? Um, hopefully, but definitely in areas, because one of the things about making an area more walkable ultimately is making it a bit more difficult to drive a car. And that's what's happening in inner Melbourne. And that's unpopular. Yeah, but that's a life because we just we don't have the road space. I think with kids walking to school and you've you hit a nail on the head, I mean, the, the stats are alarming. You know, when you've got 25 centre kids overweight or obese. When I was a kid, it's about 5% or so. But sometimes we can get preoccupied. We've just got to get kids walking to school. We actually need the whole community walking. And there's some uh, research that came out recently. Uh, we know that women walk twice as much as men. But um, 48%, only 48% of uh, Australian women feel safe walking at night in their community. The OECD average is 60%. So we're performing really well. So, you know, we need to be... We need, particularly if mums are primary carer, we need them to feel comfortable walking any time, day or night. Australian men, 80% feel comfortable with the OECD average is 76. So men, in a, you know... So we actually have to start thinking about are our streets walk-friendly for women and women's safety and f or feelings of safety and social connections, not just uh, crime figures, but connected, strong communities really critical for that. So we have to think holistically. So I think what we argue is, you know, think of we need to design our cities around the walking dependent and that's, you know, lots of seniors, people with vision impairments, other disabilities and kids off leash um, and the people who support them. So that's how we have to approach it. It's not just about kids walking to school. It's much bigger than that. You know, we can't expect kids to walk and no one else does. Are there cities around the world that have, have got that mix right, who have, who have done it particularly well? well Don't say Scandinavia. <laughs> Scandinavia. Oh, that's a city. Really? <laughs> Is that a leading question? <laughs> yeah. um, well, definitely European uh, countries have addressed this and people think, oh, that's Europe, it's different from us. And certainly traditional European cities were designed around people, not cars, a medieval city. However, so many of you know European cities have made the decision that they, you know, decades ago and continue to do it now, they're not going to, you know, have everything around cars, a reclaiming of public space. And, you know, Paris, you know, recently has made nearly, I think, the entire uh, local streets are 30 kilometres an hour. A lot of the city centre and outer suburbs making more pedestrian friendly, actually banning cars in great areas. So, you know, and I think... To go back to seniors, in Victoria, 14% of their transport trips are done entirely on foot, which is not that high, and people think that's because you get old, your functional decline, you can't walk, you're scared of whatever. But it's absolute rubbish when you compare to European cities where Germany, it's 34% get around on foot, but the over 75 there, it's 48%. 
So it's not frailty, it's designing. Uh, the Netherlands are 28% and the only reason that's low is because 28% also ride for transport. So well over 50, uh, 56, is that the mass? You know, get around walking and cycling. So yes, European cities, Japan, higher rates of walking to school for kids. We know that kids as young as five and six are walking to school by themselves or with their mates. You know, so it's not, you know, this idea that, you know, uh, the kids can't safely walk to school. Um, I think a lot of countries around the world just put us to shame. Mm. Yeah, and it catches on, doesn't it? Yep. And then it, then, then it follows through. Um, we're almost out of time, but I, I, I mean, one thing that, you know, people do do for recreation is walk. And we've got some great walks around Melbourne. I thought you could, I mean, I, I follow you on, on um, Facebook and you're putting up pictures all the time of cool places in Melbourne to walk. Maybe reel off a couple for us if you want to get out and about. Yeah, no worries. I think, you know... There's a lot of Parks Victoria walks, you know, within Melbourne and, and, and out of Melbourne. Some, a lot of them get, you can get to via public transport. You know, Plenty Gorge Walk and Warrandyne State Park. Warrandyte's not uh, State Park and Kirth Kiln um, and also the Bunyip State Park. But then I think, you know, further afield, um, you know, I love walking in the Grampians down the prom, round Malakuta and cryogene along, you know, in the mm. summer holidays. This, this, you know, this, if you can do it and you can get out just to do a beach walk, just, and it doesn't have to be far. That just, you know, the, the salt, the sea air, the smell. <laughs> no no cars on the beach. No cars. No, no although <laughs> some areas do, maybe more interstate, you know, see those ads of four-wheel drives driving on the beach. But fortunately, most of our <laughs> Probably not a cryogene along. No, no. Thanks so much for coming in, Ben. Enjoy the summer. We've been talking about school funding for years and it's still not settled. Um, There's still argy-bargy at the state and federal levels about how to fund the needs-based Gonski reforms that were brought in by the Gillard government. And there's a big meeting coming up before the end of the year to talk about it again. Uh, Pete Goss is getting in before that meeting. He's school education program director at the Grattan Institute and has some ideas for how we can circuit break uh, the issue we have with providing school funding and I suppose enough for each student to thrive. Uh, it's really great to have you back with us, Pete. And I mean, as I said, we've been talking about Gonski for so long. Can you remind us where we're at? What, what's, you know, who gets what at the moment? And I suppose what's what's at stake? Absolutely. So school funding has been a 50-year argument and Gonski was an idea to really break through that. And the principles of Gonski are fantastic. It's not what we have in practice. But the principle is that it costs different amounts to fund, um, to educate students to each of their potential. So if you've got students in a small school or a remote school or from a disadvantaged background or with this with a disability, it costs more. And so our school funding should deliver each school enough money so that they can give every kid the best shot in life. Great idea. The challenge is that um, since it was uh, brought out, both sides of politics have made compromises and uh, we're at real risk of uh, falling back into a useless blame game at the moment. Um, And part of it is driven because most schools don't get enough money to educate their students given the need of their and the background of their students. So it would cost about $3.5 billion more in order to lift all schools up under the current model. That's a real problem given a tight budget and that's why we decided that uh, we'd offer uh, our contribution to it. And so your uh, idea in the report is, you know, quite detailed, but if we can kind of go to the, the, the broad brush of what you're, you're getting at is that you've found a way to use the same funding envelope that's there, but distribute it in a slightly different way and 
bring up the, you know, fund those that need money in the way that's adequate to, to improve their education but not actually grow the pie? I suppose you should explain how this could be done. That's right. So when, when we talk about that, most people immediately jump to a small number of schools that are overfunded and certainly we say they should not get more money than they need, but that's not nearly enough bucks to aim to deliver all schools the money that they do need. What's changed is that um, in 2016, right now, we're in a period of historically low wages growth and low inflation. And that means that the money we had planned to spend can go a whole lot further. That for a school that's being funded at the right level, its amount of uh, annual school funding, the amount it gets each year, should go in line with wages, but that's slower than it would have been under the rules that are currently in the legislation. And so it sounds very technical, and it's, a, it's about a one percentage point difference. But just imagine the scale of one percentage of $40 billion, which is what we spend on schools each year. In the first year, that's worth $400 million. The next year, it doubles $800 million. Then $1.2 billion, $1.6. You know, these are huge numbers on the table because of the power of compound interest. That's where we get the money to fund all schools according to need, and we're actually able to say you put aside some of it to invest in quality teaching. And it, it sounds like almost too good to be true, Pete. There's um, a, a better, um, I guess, way forward with, with, in relation to schools funding without actually spending more money than we have earmarked for the education portfolio currently. And there is a, a meeting to be held before the end of the year in the next few weeks, I think, between the country's education ministers. Do you think this report will inform what they do next with schools funding? I certainly hope that it will. The, the, the Commonwealth Coalition, um, in their budget of 2016, recognised the fact that the previous model was very expensive and uh, reduced the amount of funding. And we're saying we can match that. We're not asking the Commonwealth Government to put more money in, nor indeed states. We're saying let's take that amount of money and spend it in the best ways possible, get the money to the places that need it, and then invest in quality teaching. I've been around the country over the last month or so, and I've been talking to uh, all of the various different uh, states and territories and the Catholic schools and the independent schools. And there's two ways that this can play out, Dylan. Each of the parties can look at it and say, I know what I want, I'm not going to compromise. And if we go down that path, we'll end up in a real mess and there's a chance that it will go very, very badly with money being taken off in, a, in schools in haphazard ways. Or we can take the approach that I've taken, which is this is a complex funding system. It's why the report is somewhat technical. But let's lay out the principles. All kids should be funded at the right level. We don't want to spend more money. We need to spend money well. It should be transparent. And effectively, we crank the handle. I've released the financial model that underpins it. Crank the handle and we say, actually, it's possible to do this. Everyone would have to give a bit. That's the nature of a, a grand bargain. But everyone would get something that they really value. And we could move past this old, tired debate about school funding into what the debate really should be about, which is quality. And I, I love this idea of giving a bit because it does sound easy when you put it like that. But would it require a full renegotiation of, of Gonski and, and I suppose the ways that the various states have implemented it, um, Pete, to, to bring it about? That has to happen anyway. 
that we are saying build on the um, underlying Gonski ideas, including the formula that they have and the principles that have not been reflected in practice. But in order for the Commonwealth to get its budget through, it already re needs to renegotiate the deals. And my analysis is that what they're currently offering won't be attractive enough, and that's where different stakeholders might start lobbing bombs. If we have to renegotiate something, I'd put up an idea that is actually both fair and attractive. It focuses everybody on the most expert teachers. It's something that's worth fighting for. So if we have to compromise, let's compromise some for something that's worthwhile. And as you mentioned, Pete, a lot of the, the debate and discussion around schools funding and schools policy is around the, the money that goes into it. But quality is ultimately what matters and in terms of those, particularly lower socioeconomic schools, in having um, the best learning outcomes they possibly can for their students. And as part of this report, um, and I must admit I haven't read the whole thing, but I saw that you've also proposed uh, the introduction of two new high-level teaching positions to boost teacher quality in schools. Can you talk us through that and how that might work? Absolutely. We know a lot about what works best in education. The challenge is we haven't translated that systematically into every classroom. And part of the reason why is it's, in a sense, everybody's responsibility to use the best practice in education. But when it's everyone's responsibility, it's nobody's. And it's nobody's day job in the current system. So we're proposing a structural change where we create new roles for the most highly skilled teachers. Instructional leaders would work within their schools, half-time in their own classroom, half-time training other teachers, zero time doing admin. And then master teachers would work across schools because to improve in any area, but in education as well, you need to be doing two things. You need to be looking at your own practice and gradually improving that, and you need to be looking at others' practice to see what you can take or what you might want to avoid. So we're creating new roles to make sure that this becomes structural and systematic, that the education system is learning and improving all the time. Um, uh, Pete Goss is with us from the Grattan Institute talking about a new way forward with regards to negotiations around education funding across Australia and I, I feel like we can't have an, a discussion about education Pete without bringing in private versus public versus Catholic um, so with regards to the way that the different um, school systems work together are you when you go around the country and, and talk about how we can better use the money that's available for education do you see consensus across the the kind of mainstreams of education? I think we're a long way from a consensus, I'm afraid, Kalia. And the more that we spend time talking about money, the more that people look at their own narrow self-interest. And this is part of the reason for saying we need to solve this, we need a transparent system. So we stopped spending all of our time talking about money. Because once we can get beyond that, there is much more consensus. There's a consensus that teachers need to understand where each of their students is currently at so they can teach them what to learn next. Um, and there are some great models where taking expertise, um, schools can learn from each other, including across sectors. Because in the end, it's about kids when once we get down to the teaching, not about the sectors. 
You know, so it's very refreshing to hear... ...from funding yeah. is part of this. Yeah, it's refreshing to hear you say that. And, I mean, just to completely change topics a little bit, um, earlier in the year we had you on talking about your influential report and that people continue to quote around the, the hundreds of schools that Victoria is going to be short over the coming years uh, just to cater to for sheer numbers and growth in population and the like. And I wonder, as we look into 2017, Pete, uh, how, how are we going in Victoria to, I suppose, supply the schools that we need in, in various growth corridors and the inner city and the like? So the biggest challenge is actually in the outer growth uh, corridors, um, but the inner city ones we hear a lot about. There's been some positive movements. There have been new schools announced in Docklands, um, in Preston, I believe in uh, out in Wyndham down towards Geelong. Um, and the Victorian government has uh, put in place a new, um, I think I've got the name right, a new schools resourcing body so that there are people whose day job it is to look at where a school is going to be needed and to do more systematic planning. That's a real step forward and the new schools that have been announced are great. This needs to become the new normal, that we are going to have to be opening schools in Victoria for as far as the eye can see because Melbourne is the fastest growing large city in the developed world. That's great in many ways, but we've got to get the planning right. Thanks so much. And um, going by speaking with you, uh, education is also good for employment. So <laughs> good for the economy. Uh, all the best. And um, we'll catch you again in 2017. Thanks for being with us today. Thanks, Carly. Thanks, Dylan. Um, Pete Goss, he's with the Grattan Institute. And uh, if you want to find out more about his report, you can get it online on the grapevine. And Sally Rippon joins us as she does once a month, author, illustrator, wonderful writer for children. Thanks, Sally, for coming coming in. I think this is our last for the year, isn't it? It is. It's a little bit sad. We've had a lot of fun. I know. We'll come back next year. Yeah. Oh, good. Yeah. We're going to hold you to that. (laughs) In this post-fact world, I hope that's not (laughs) faceless. Um, But it was big news when our readings bookstore opened their, their dedicated children's bookshop in Carlton in October. In fact, I saw it reported on the news, um, which is, I don't think I've ever seen a bookstore reported on the news before. Uh, I mean, we've got dedicated bookstores for kids already, like the little book room in North Fitzroy, but it's wonderful to see this part of the book trade growing and people getting behind our local and international children's book uh, writers. And Angela Crocom's the children's book buyer at Readings Carlton. And it's really great to have you in because we're going to be talking about the best books or some of the best books or your selections. Fantastic. <laughs> I don't know how to bill it. It's a tricky thing, isn't it, because it's so yeah. personal. Yeah. And um, and I think that's why you choose books really well because you have an idea of seeing a book that goes with a particular person and so you've got a really great range here but you're also thinking of a broad range of readers so yeah. what you would love and what you think younger readers <laughs> might love too. It's, it's hard. It was a difficult decision, I have to say. We limited you to three <laughs> per category, <laughs> but you know what? You got three categories as well. But, I mean, maybe we can talk a little bit about um, reading for children because certainly older children still love picture story books and, mm. you know, kids read across what they should and shouldn't read. Some kids are reading adult books already and, you know, uh, and I suppose, I mean, how should we think about books for children, Angela, do you think? Well, I think it's it's great that they're reading and you want to get them excited and, you know, some of those readers they have at school are just really depressing <laughs> and, um, yeah, so you want them to be in love with books and wander around the house holding them and not be able to put them down and so there's lots of great kids' books that do that, I think, and make them excited. 
And so. do you find you have a lot of parents coming in saying, I have a child this age and all grandparents who may not know their grandchildren's reading habits so well and they need advice? Because like Carlia said, there might be um, a six-year-old who's reading well ahead of themselves or yeah. a 12-year-old who really needs something a little bit um, easier to, to access. Absolutely. That's our favourite thing is doing the recommendations. <laughs> yeah, lots of people ask. Yeah. And it's great. And... Um, with the, for example, we can start with bad guys is a really great example of that. It's something that much younger children can read and older kids would be really engaged by as well. Yeah. Do you want to start with that particular category? Yeah, is that sure, your, your middle definitely. reader category? Yeah, so that's at, at the, this is early chapter books for kids who are just starting to learn to read and you really want to hook them in with a fun story and something that, that they love and that makes them laugh because most of those school readers don't. <laughs> um, so Aaron Blaby is just, you know, a genius at making people laugh, I think. And uh, this Bad Guys series is specifically developed for, for early readers so that, you know, there's not too many big words, it's very accessible and it's got the archetypal bad guys, Mr Wolf, Mr Fox, Mr Piranha, Mr Shark, <laughs> who are trying to do good. Mr. Wolf really wants to be a good guy, and, you know, but it's really hard. Do you remember that movie <laughs> Shark Tales that was out quite... That makes yeah. me think of that a little bit. So they're a little bit mafia, but they're, yeah. you know, a little bit soft at the same time. Yeah. yeah, yeah. He definitely took his cues from some of those bad guys' movies. Yeah, <laughs> but it's very funny. I, I like yeah. books that attempt to shatter the stigma that some animals have attached to them as well. Yeah. Yeah, there's nothing Foxes wrong with a piranha. Always, <laughs> no. <laughs> yeah. right. They're just doing what they do, aren't they? <laughs> and are they sort of, yeah. um, you know... Uh, I love it when publishers resist the the girl book and boy book thing. Mm. And so the bad guys is yeah. not a girl book or a boy book, no, is it? No, definitely not. It, it, it's an animal book. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and um, definitely we love those books as well because, um, yeah, it's really tiresome when people try and pigeonhole their kid into, you know, the very girly girl or the very boy boy who won't read about any female characters. And, you know, it's not... It's not very healthy for them and, um, yeah. And often that'll be led by the adult who's buying the books mm. too, won't it? I mm. see it time and time again yeah. where you might give a recommendation of a book for a boy who has a female protagonist and they'll say, no, 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 it's for a boy. And it's like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's okay. <laughs> it's how we learn about what it's like to be someone else. Yeah. Yeah. Or even books written by women for boys. Yeah. I mean, this is something, a sticking point for me when you see women authors actually use initials rather than their full name so that they, they can kind of be mm. for everybody, which... I don't know, what's that about? Yeah. <laughs> well, it's often a marketing thing, would you say, as well, because once the kid gets into the book, they're, they're into the story. Yeah. And yeah. some and people have handled that very well. Like I think that Skullduggery series handled mm. that very well and that the main female character is very strong and very feisty, but they made the book look very approachable for boys and yeah. the black cover looks a little bit scary and yeah. so they don't even realise they're reading about a girl. <laughs> <laughs> but it's it's like you say, Carly, how much do you play into that or how much do you just say to kids, you know, read, broad reading is, is healthy for you. It's like getting yeah. vegetables. It's a broad, broad range of them. <laughs> or just, you know, this is a really kick-ass character mm. who happens to be a girl. Yeah. Yeah, crazy. So Bad Guys is um, a recommendation for junior middle. What else do you reckon? Um, from, are these all from this year that you that you yes. sort of bring in? Yeah, yep, definitely. So um, this author, A.F. Harold, is a British author and uh, he did a book called The Imaginary a few years ago, which was about um, imaginary friends. 
and uh, this this scary thing, uh, monster who was trying to steal all the imaginary friends. And this one is his new one. It's called The Song from Somewhere Else and it's been illustrated by uh, a man called Levi Pinfold who lives in Queensland and it's just beautifully illustrated which really adds to the story. And it's it's about it's a little bit about bullying. Um, there's a boy and girl main character and the girl is being bullied by some horrible boys from school and the boy who's much bigger than all the other kids and a little bit strange rescues her from the bullies and he takes her back to his house and uh, she hears this this song this beautiful beautiful music coming from downstairs and while he's out of the room she sneaks downstairs and sees this this creature down there this this woman that she thinks is is a troll um making this song and so that it goes on from there i won't say any more but um yeah it's a beautiful story and and she's trying to discover what's going on and she also learns that, that you know her perception her initial perceptions of this boy were very different he's actually very gentle and very lovely um and they you know eventually beat those nasty bullies mm. as well it's a lovely production too, isn't it? And I do remember the imaginary. It's a similar mm. format in that it's hardback. It's a novel, but it's fully illustrated with really gorgeous illustrations. Mm. And um, that was Emily Gravett, I think, that illustrated yeah. the... So this one's got a very different feel. It feels perhaps a little bit more serious, is it, than mm. the imaginary? Yeah. Yeah, yep. but similar age group. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And, you know, I think it's lovely. We all love a, a beautiful book with pictures in it. Absolutely. <laughs> and um, so, yeah, I would say this one is sort of uh, nine to 12-year-olds, so much older than the bad guys. Um, but, yeah, just beautiful. Mm. Wow, and it's hardcover too, the one you've brought mm. in, which is gorgeous. And so uh, another one by um, Karen Foxley that you yeah. recommend for this kind of group of readers, yes. I suppose? Yes, so this is for those kids who really love magic and witches and um, a bit of a Harry Potter fans as well. Um, so it's about a young girl who's been brought up by her mum. She doesn't know what happened to her dad. Her mother's always kind of fobbing her off. And then suddenly one day her mum has to go away and um, is shipping her off to her aunties who and who she's never met, she knows nothing about. And, um, of course, it turns out that her aunties are witches and that her mum was actually a very good witch but never told anyone about it, never told her about it, certainly, and that um, this evil warlock is, is trying to kill all the witches and she has to become the most magical girl and, and rescue them all. <laughs> Fantastic. <laughs> And yeah. one of her earlier books, I think, was um, shortlisted for the Readings Children's Book Award. Yeah. Um, yeah. Is that two or three years ago? Yeah. yeah. About that. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Ophelia and the Marvellous Boy. Yeah. yeah. That was a really beautiful kind of magical one. So, so Readings has a book award then? for Yeah. So we started a few years ago. We, we started an adult prize and at the same time we started a prize for children's authors who are just kind of in the early years of, of their journey as a children's book author because it's so difficult to um to build your name and to get publicity so it's for um authors who've australian authors who have done three books or less in in the children's area not picture books and not young adults so sort of that middle area um 
And yeah, Sally was has been the judge for the past. Three I didn't years. know that. Well, you do a lot wonderful. of things I don't know about. <laughs> <laughs> I know I have to give you more up to date. <laughs> and was it River Time was last year or the year before? That was a really interesting kind of yes. picture book, come graphic yeah. novel. And so that was the year before, mm. and then this year was Run Pip Run. That's right. Which uh, was by a Sydney author about um, yeah a girl who's pretty much on the streets mm. and um, learning to fend for herself. Yeah. I wonder what is it about that that sort of middle category of of or writing for the, that sort of group mm. that that reading sees as particularly important to support yeah well we felt that it was a bit overlooked i mean there's a lot of awards and attention given to young adult books and to picture books but you know there's a really formative years between sort of five and twelve where you're really kind of trying to a hook child, hook a child into being a reader for life, and that's when that's they're they're forced to read the school readers at yeah. the same time. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's like an antidote, <laughs> but it's a really golden era to write for too, because they the children are old enough that you can really go into something quite um, substantial and quite mm. complex, but they're young enough that you can kind of cross into realms of magic or imagination quite easily without yeah. necessarily marking it out. And I think once you get to young adult, it's it's often there's many more issues related to it as yeah. well or they're not so easily resolved. So I think this is a really beautiful age it group is. to write for. It is, and you don't have to deal with romance, no, which is very thorny. <laughs> <laughs> I read a lot in this category, and uh, I was saying to Dylan earlier today that uh, friends of mine were complimenting me that I read my daughter's books but they're so quick and easy I mean they she leaves them lying around I pick them up and read them and one of hers that she read this year was The War That Saved My Life by um, Kimberly Brubaker Bradley who I'd never heard of before and a uh, high recommendation from me I thought it was an amazing book done well set at that sort of second world war period when when London was being bombed and uh, what happened to the children that went to the country and you know one one family in particular uh, what happened to um, the children that were coming from a neglectful background and so hence the, the title The War That Saved My Life and so it's really fascinating the kinds of topics that you can actually tackle for this age kid the sort mm. of 10, 10, 12 yeah. year yeah. olds you know they can deal with war if you write it in the right Absolutely. way. Absolutely. Sonia Hartnett showed us that as well that you can write for that age group yeah. and write about war. Mm. Yeah absolutely in the, in the Silver Donkey in particular yeah mm. and Judith Russell has her new book out too we had her on the station in the station a few I think it must be a few months ago now and so there have been a lot of people who've been really hanging out for this new book which I'm yet to read but I'm sure it is. Have you read mm. it yourself? I haven't. Wormwood right. Meyer. It's only just come out. Then. Yeah, I am looking forward to reading it. Me too. She came in to sign. I have to buy one of those signed copies. <laughs> <laughs> Love a good signed copy. Uh, if you've just tuned in, we're speaking with Sally Rippin and Angela Crocom uh, about really the top reads this year, um, recommendations for three categories of readers, picture books, junior, middle and YA. And uh, we've just been speaking about junior and middle readers and we'll put these up on our page of the Triple R website and on Facebook as well if you want to chase them up after the show. Um, but why don't we talk about young adults? Because I imagine this is a particularly tricky category to buy for, but there's been some great um, releases this year. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, one of the a book that all of us at work kind of devoured very quickly, and some people had nightmares, uh, is an Irish novel called The Call, um, which is really suited to those people who love The Hunger Games. So adult readers as well, um, and that kind of dystopian sort of fight for your life action, um, and it's set in a, uh, an alternate island where the fairy folk and humans signed a, a pact about four hundred years ago, and the fairies were banished to this this um, 
kind of other land, this intermediate land, but um, they've been fighting back and they uh, take teenagers past the age of 13. They will just take every single teenager at some point. You don't know when, but you will have the call and they'll just disappear. Their clothes will fall to the ground and suddenly they're in the fairy world and they're being hunted by the fairies and they have 24 hours to survive um, before they, they... go back to Ireland wow. and um, it's very exciting and <laughs> terrifying. Yeah. Lots of people have had nightmares with wow. <laughs> some adults but um, but just really, yeah, action-packed and really well done. Has, has the author written other books previously? No, no, I don't think so. I think it's a debut and... Um, it's going to be it's going to be the first of a series. Mm. There'll definitely be more, and uh, yeah, it was just really good, really strong uh, main character, a young girl who's um, she's I think she had polio, so she's she's limping. So everybody kind of writes her off that there's no way she's going to be able to uh, escape the fairies, but uh, she's very tough. That's great. And I mean, series are seem to be important for young readers. This is yeah. something that once they know they they like it. Mm. then they will go back for more. Absolutely. They do love a good series. They get hooked in and mm. very addicted. They know the world and they're happy to go back in there yeah, again. Yeah. I'm really glad Kath Crowley made your list. I was very happy to see that one here. <laughs> Can you tell our yeah, listeners well, about as, that? As a bookseller, you mm. know, I mean, it's, it's like a, a love letter to books and bookshops, really. Um, yeah, it's so beautiful and just kind of talks about so many different books and, and the power of words and the power of... Um, of, of stories essentially in connecting people and there's yeah. so many different characters that, that are affected by it. And we had Kath in earlier this year as well and she talked quite in depth about where the ideas from the story came from and mm. um, yeah it's really really a beautiful book very heart-wrenching. Yeah. Words yeah. in Deep Blue is, is the name of it by Kath Crowley and I mean are you seeing uh, local readers gravitating towards local authors? Do you, yeah, can you, absolutely. Do you see that? Absolutely and we've you know we're very passionate about supporting um, local authors and we've got a separate uh, Australian young adult section now to really um, uh, boost the profile of those and yeah kids I mean kids don't really care you know they want a good story uh, the parents really happy to support an Australian author but um, you know the kids don't mind they don't know yeah and do you know much about the La- the Lavos YA because yeah. that's quite a big movement too isn't yeah, it? it's very absolutely. supportive and, and young adult uh, category can be read up, a lot of adults will read young yeah, adult yeah absolutely books as I well. mean it's these are of... yeah very suited to adults as mm. well definitely mm. and I think that that barrier between you know what a teenager reads and what an adult reads has, has dissipated a lot mm. and, and lots of adults will openly admit to loving <laughs> young adult literature and there's one more in that category yeah, so well. uh, two Melbourne authors, again, uh, Amy Kaufman and Jay Kristoff. Um, this is the second book in a series they've done, which is this kind of sci-fi space odyssey. That it's is a tome. Just, it's huge. It is, <laughs> it is, and it's really, really, they're doing something really interesting and really unique and um, incredibly compelling to read as well so it's um so the first book was was set on one spaceship and there's all these intergalactic wars going on this is on a different spaceship different characters uh so you don't need to have read the first book um and this this group of of killers has been sent to to come and and 
get rid of them all on the ship. So there's a boy and a girl and, well, there's quite a few characters, but they're basically trying to survive. And um, But so there's, there's emails and dossiers and kind of um, footage, video footage is used. Um, so it's not so much a novel as a collection of different I'm sort clicking of the pages now so <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's a lot in yeah. there. Yeah. part of the reason why it's so thick is because so so much of the layout is done in a really interesting way yeah. like emails and Your text um, messages yeah it's and so it's almost it's almost like illustration but in text isn't yeah. it it's, yeah um, it's very clever and really funny as well like a, a lot of um just sass in there <laughs> so lots of adults read the first one and um yeah i highly recommend it to adults and and uh young adults as well and no uh, i mean at the beginning we we said angela that readings has opened a dedicated bookstore for children in in carlton and i um I mean, when people think kids' book, they think picture story, mm-hmm. uh, picture story yeah. books, and uh, I mean, this is what a lot of people will be making a beeline for um, for for gifts this year as well. I mean, that's yeah. a really common gift, isn't it? Um, so, what what have you picked out from from the picture story collection? Okay. Well, first up, um, I've picked the new one by Mark Martin, who has done a beautiful mural in our bookshop um, based on his book The River. But this is his new one. It's called Lots, and it. Goes goes around the world to some very interesting destinations. Uh, for Australia, he picked Alice Springs. And uh, he's just picked out lots of quirky little things, lots of beautiful um, facts about it, lots of gorgeous animals in each location. So he also does Antarctica, talks about whales and the, the, um, the ice stations there. And it's a really gorgeous coffee table book for... You know, anyone, kind of five plus, can get a lot out of it. And there's not really a story so much as there is just each page is just full of detail and and interesting kind of anecdotes about the different places that that are visited in the book. Yeah, so it's kind of a jumping off point to learn more about the world. I love that he covers Alain Batar, which is the capital of Mongolia and the least (laughs) densely populated country in the world. Didn't know that. (laughs) It it does just look like a really nice coffee table book to have. I mean, I wouldn't even look at that and think that's that's a kid's picture book. Yeah, that's right. And there's lots of books at the moment, lots of gorgeous non-fiction books that are just stunning to put on the coffee table will impress everyone because <laughs> <laughs> that's what we're about yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's absolutely and his style is quite sophisticated as well so yeah, yeah. it'll look good in your house i reckon i reckon yeah <laughs> <laughs> and what else have you got there Angela? okay um the next one i've got is by gus gordon who is a wonderful sydney based illustrator and um storyteller and this is about a duck called uh george george laurent he's he's a french duck but uh it doesn't you know it doesn't focus on that too much that's paris but uh he likes to bake and and he likes to um you know he's a he's a bit of a homebody like a lot of us you know and uh he sees every year he sees all the other ducks migrating and you know, he's like, no, I'm, I'm busy baking. I've, I've got something in the oven. I, I can't do that. And then, of course, it turns out that eventually maybe he would like to go travelling. But unfortunately, on the day when they were all taught how to fly, he was busy baking. And so he can't actually migrate anywhere because he can't fly. And um, so he, he has a friend who's a bear and they, they figure out a solution and they get a uh, lovely balloon and go on adventures occasionally 
So they don't go all the time. They come back and they bake and they rest. (laughs) 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 Yeah, I think it's it's beautifully illustrated, really um, unique style. But I also think it works on a number of levels. And, you know, from a a child to can get something out of it, but an adult can also kind of read in the the more sophisticated um, story that's happening. Yeah, so I guess is one like of that. my favourite illustrators. I love his work and I he spends a lot of time in France, I think, and he picks over all these beautiful old um, postcards mm. and advertisements and um, everything is kind of um, intricately wound through all his illustrations. So there's... Um, Drawings that are like old etchings, and they're his own interpretations of that era. And so, there's something about his style that's very sophisticated but really friendly at the same time. Yeah. I really, really love his work. Yeah. yeah. And the last one we're going to speak about today, uh, just going by the cover, um, you don't see photographs <laughs> that much on kids' books, do you? You really don't. But it's actually a photograph <laughs> on this one. Yep, yep. So, this is very retro. So, this is. Um, come out from a little local um, publisher Scribble, which is an imprint of Scribe, who are based very nearby Triple R. And uh, it was actually a, a, a very famous book in Germany. It was published in 1968 and has been in print in Germany ever since then. I was going to say, I, I, re- I associate <laughs> photographs in g- picture storybooks from the 70s. It's, it's, yeah. it's an aesthetic. Yeah. I, I think of the overalls that the, the kids would wear. Well. Yeah, the red balloon. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. It's got that look. Well, that's yeah, a bit older, but yeah, that yeah. one too. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, just really gorgeous. So this little girl lives on an island and she just tells you this story about how they found a a, a pet donkey, a baby donkey, and rescued it and it's become their pet. And um, it's just a really... She is wearing overalls. She is wearing overalls. (laughs) There is one scene where she is nude. (laughs) <laughs> so nudity alert <laughs> but um, they're just gorgeous and really retro and just um, I think you know there are lots of kids who don't like to go on those imaginative flights of fancy and they actually do prefer photographs and prefer a very realist story and um, my donkey Benjamin and its companion book my pig Paulina um, really cater for that for those kids that want you know, a photograph. Mm. Is anyone writing new books with with photographs like that that you can think of? I can't think of any. Actually, well, we were chatting about the, the niche, um, everybody. <laughs> well, we were chatting about the Miss Peregrine's. Um, yes, that, okay, yes. That began. Yeah. I, I've just started reading that with my son, and that began with the man who wrote the story. I think yeah. he collected a whole lot of old photographs and pretty much constructed a story around these old photographs. Yeah. Found very yeah. weird. You know how sometimes you can find some really weird photographs from the 1800s and so he constructed kind of crazy stories around them. And I think that's, you were saying that's a movie on at the moment, but we're trying to get through the book first. Yes, (laughs) yes. So that would be 13 plus, Miss Peregrine's, definitely. Yeah, a little bit spooky. Yeah. Yeah. And some really fantastic recommendations in there, um, picture story books, and I'll, I'll put them up on, on the web um, rather than read them all out again. But if you're interested in uh, recommendations coming from Angela Crocombe, from, who's the children's book buyer at Readings Carlton, you can head to our Facebook page and I'll stick them up after the show. Uh, and uh, we'll, um, I suppose, catch you next year, Sally. Hello, Thank hello. you so much. Um, Have a great for, summer. For bringing so many wonderful um, illustrators, writers, publishers, booksellers in uh, to Triple R over this past 12 months and we'll catch you back Thank in you January, February me. 2017. Catch you then. Yeah, great. <laughs> and um, thanks, Angela, for coming in. And um, if people want great. more recommendations, um, the Readings website actually has a stack more. We've limited her to three um, <laughs> per category, yes. but there's a lot more there if yeah. you want to check it out or I suppose um, head down to your favourite bookstore 
and get recommendations from the staff there because um, that's that's where you'll find the good stuff. Yeah, that's what we love to do. Thanks so much. Thank you. Catch you soon. You've been listening to a podcast from Australia's best-known community radio station, 3RRR, 102.7 in Melbourne. For more podcasts, information about upcoming events and our live stream, please visit our website at rrr.org.au.